breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze TV podcast. Network. Tell your friends about the program. If you're looking for political correctness, if you're looking for apologetics, you've come to the wrong place. If you're looking for honesty, for genuine reform, for a Muslim who is honest about what we need to do, what we need to reform, where Muslims need to take responsibility for our own faith, and you've come to the right place, this is the place to be. The podcast Reform This. This week, I, I have to talk about how apoplectic the left has become when one of its own had the temerity to use the word assimilation had the temerity so you know it's not just them hating the right when their own uses a term he didn't even know was what was coming his way he invoked the need to assimilate and next thing you know He's being compared to white supremacists. Who is that? This is somebody who's not a conservative. This is somebody who's not even right of center. Tom Brokaw. He's a patriot. He loves this country. He's written about the greatest generation. He is a newscaster I had a lot of problems with ideologically, but he is somebody now who went south of the identity movement that is the radicals of the left the radicals of the left. Now, as, an Isl- as, as somebody fighting Islamists, I can tell you that this, this idea of assimilation is something that we need to understand and that ultimately, if you continue to want to make it into evil, into something un-American, then we're never going to defeat Islamism. We never are. So let me, let me drill down on that. But first, let's talk about what am I talking about? National Review wrote about this this week. They said, The worst thought crime is the one you don't even realize you're committing. On NBC News, the legend Tom Brokaw was being interviewed, I think by Chuck Todd on Meet the Press, where the intelligentsia come to talk about what's happening in Washington. And what happened? Well, he went to talk about various issues of the day, and he said, quote, The Hispanics should work harder at assimilation, unquote. The condemnations were swift and sweeping and a sign that being a beloved media figure has never before said anything that could legitimately be considered bigoted as no defense when the furies descend. He went from Presidential Medal of Freedom to the White Hood in one soundbite. A group that called themselves Latino Victory hit him for allegedly giving credence to white supremacy ideology. His apologies were deemed insufficient and part and parcel of the original offense. National Review goes on to say that, let's stipulate that using a definite article to refer to any minority group will always strike people as tone deaf. But what Brokaw was getting at, the importance of assimilation to cultural cohesion should be uncontroversial. And I think this is the best part of the article. The National Review says, you know, the old American ideal of the melting pot is that immigrants become wholly American, learning the language, embracing the folkways and traditions, becoming deeply patriotic. 
but also make a distinctive contribution to our national culture, which is organic and open to a variety of influences. It's wrong to view this dominant culture as hateful or exclusionary. As Lind wrote in 95 in The American Nation, The Next American Nation, he said, The common culture of the American nation is a unique blend of elements contributed by Algonquin Indians, Midwestern Quakers, Black Americans, Mexican Matinos, New England patricians. The national culture is not a white culture. Black Americans, in fact, have shaped it far more than the most numerous white immigrant group, German Americans. Brokaw simply focused on assimilation as a function of individual effort on the part of immigrants. The real problem is that we have fashioned an immigration system that is not geared towards assimilation. It's geared towards separate parts, not the sum of its parts being greater than the whole. It's geared towards continued separatism, and thus the left's embrace of Farrakhan's Nation of Islam, a deep separatism, and thus the Women's March embrace of Farrakhan, and thus their embrace of anti-Semitism. They don't care about the separatism. In fact, they want it in order to keep the partial collectivist groups as part of their larger collectivist left based on identity politics that are skin deep and not ideological diversity. So what is amazing to me is that at the core of what our founding fathers fought for, at the core of revolutionary Americanism, is a belief that the strongest system for freedom, our first liberty, religious freedom, is a system under God, a Judeo-Christian moral ethic that is under God, but protects every individual regardless of faith or no faith, but protects their personal individual practice of faith, of speech, of assembly, of individuality, of freedom. And that diversity of ideas, that diversity of speech, that diversity of faith, then creates a fabric that now has proven itself to be the best system of government on the planet based on the success of free markets, the success of our economy, the success of our individuality, of our cultural products, and so much more. 70% of the world still lives in autocratic nations now with the Islamic countries leading the list and then add to that Russia and China and you have 3 billion to 4 billion people under oppression. And then you have the West that's living in freedom. So when we talk about Americanism, if you want to interpret assimilation as destroying the identities that you came from, then that's going to be a pejorative. It's going to be a negative. But that's not what assimilation is. To assimilate is to aspirate into a society that allows you to maintain the identities that you brought with you, the diversity, but as long as you become part of the whole, which is based in a contract to protect our country from enemies foreign and domestic, to, to believe in a system based in reason, to accept the rule of law, to accept the equality of all before the law, and on to the other principles that are important in Americanism, American freedom, our separation of powers, and our Bill of Rights. So 
as somebody who's dedicated my life to fighting Islamism, I think of assimilation as that idea that made me who I am, that became my identity, that preserved my ability to love my faith and reject all the parts. Some of you may feel that I reject the center of Islam. I would say that's what I'm dedicating my life to fight is to live in a laboratory that allows me to define my own faith and work with folks who, Muslim and non-Muslim, who agree with me that the theocrats are the evil part of Islam that need to be defeated, that their 12th, 13th century interpretations are the core problems, that they need to be modernized, that they need a separation of mosque and state. We need to reject blasphemy laws, apostasy laws, misogynistic laws against women, against minorities, and others that right now dominate the Islamic establishment. Americanism, my assimilation into Americanism, allowed me the power to understand what freedom is and the ability to become an American Muslim with a Judeo-Christian, I would add, Islamic understanding of character, identity, honesty, integrity, these moralities that make somebody virtuous, as Bill Bennett talks about virtues in his book of virtues. America gave me the freedom to do that. My assimilation gave me the identity to do that. It gave me the warmth of comfort that now I've been able to have the confidence to push back against the theocratic elements of Islam that I refuse to believe have to be part of Islam. So whether you're Hispanic or German or Italian or African or Saudi or Indian, East Indian or Near East Indian, at the end of the day, nobody's saying to abandon your culture, your music, your food, your your uh, uh, ethnic identity. But when you become an American, assimilation is believing in the primary cause that is our social contract, our legal contract that is Americanism. And Islamism is incompatible with that. So bless you, Tom Brokaw, for understanding that it is up to the immigrants to assimilate. The society has to be welcoming to that. Yeah, if you're a neo-Nazi or if you believe in white supremacism, you won't be welcome to that. But at the end of the day, the as Tom Brokaw was trying to say, is that it is the role, it is the responsibility of the immigrants to assimilate, to embrace who they are. And that's why first-generation immigrants work so hard, are usually independent, free marketeers who really have a sense of rugged individualism because they escaped countries, they're learning a new language here, they're learning a new culture, but yet they appreciate more than any generation typically after them. They appreciate the openness and the acceptance of American society. And sometimes, yeah, they put up with more than they should, but it's certainly still better off than the countries they came from. At least from my understanding of what Syria was, of what Saudi Arabia, Iran, Korea, uh, North Korea, all the countries that they're escaping, 70% of the world lives under some type of autocracy. So now, so now, Joaquin Castro, a Democratic congressman, says that Brokaw is a xenophobe. He's expressing the worst form of xenophobia in his language. 
But actually saying that immigrants should assimilate is contrary to xenophobia. As the National Review says, it's an expression of a belief that they can be and should be fully part of the American mainstream. Nobody's telling them to sacrifice who they are. So this is the battle, ladies and gentlemen. Will we allow the progressivists and the left, the far left, to trounce on beautiful humanitarian concepts like assimilation that allow us to become out of many one, e pluribus unum, or do we allow them to fuel and maintain a separationism that destroys our unity, destroys all the great elements that America will leave in its legacy? And as Ronald Reagan says, we're one generation away from losing the freedoms that we have. So what is the American legacy? And I would tell you that assimilation is the American legacy. Assimilation is the American legacy. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you look at what, as history speaks to what each country leaves its impact on the world, the impact of American culture has been individuality, the, the uh, ability for self-expression, the ability for self-creation, the story of those who became wealthy when they worked hard, who became successful and well-known when they worked hard, who were able to push back against leadership because they had the resources and the respect to do so. No matter how tough it is to live here in America, it's still a story that rivals any autocratic nation like China or Iran or Saudi Arabia. So, I'll take assimilation. In fact, assimilation is what's keeping me who I am, and I don't reject it. I'm not afraid of it. In fact, if as I fight Islamism, America's legacy will be its assimilated ideology. The Islamists want to assimilate everybody, including non-Muslims, into their theocracy. They even have laws that say that the Christians, the Jews, are dhimmis, they're protected under their assimilation. So, we should not be ashamed of assimilation in America. You can make that negative if you want, but it's not a negative concept. American exceptionalism, is that going to now be negative? Many are trying to do so. This is the problem I have with the kneeling during the anthem. We maybe have tons of justice issues you want to protest in America, but there are some things that we should just come together with. And the flag before sports event is simply a statement of who we are as a country. It's like a prayer before dinner. Is that a time to protest if you're upset with your parents or whatever it is? I don't think so. There might be other times to do that. The prayer before dinner is to recognize God and thanks and, and blessings for the blessings that we have. The national anthem before a game is a, thing, is a chance to recognize that regardless who wins or loses or who gets hurt in the game, we're here as a country to celebrate our freedom and to be thankful for it. So assimilation and patriotism, not nationalism. Yes, national identity is important. And yes, national identity gone extreme will give you the likes of 
Jamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt, the fascist Arabist of the mid-20th century. Hafiz and then Bashar Assad, again the national Arabist Ba'athist, fascist of Syria, Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi. All these are not ideologues of Islamism like the Brotherhood or Khomeinism. They are simply fascist dictators. So there's no doubt that national identity gone extreme will give you the likes of Adolf Hitler and his Aryan race. But to to equate assimilation, as the critics of Tom Brokaw this week became apoplectic after he made the statement, shows you that even when they're own, they're starting to have speech police that are, are using terms that we can use as ideological markers of of strengthening core values. And I think that's what assimilation is about. Do you come to this country to strengthen your core values and learn what it is to become American? And this is one of the things I've talked about many times on television nationally after terror attacks and others. I'll say, are Muslims here not simply just not to be terrorists? That's That's just simply preventing themselves from becoming radical. That's nothing. What is their identity? Do they want to die for America or are they going to die for jihad? Yes, that is a choice. There is no way to choose both. You can't be a jihadi and a patriotic American. Are they going to embrace and love American identity or just tolerate it? And I don't think there's an in-between. Muslims who embrace and love American identity or assimilate could never become jihadis. If you look at Nidal Hassan, I talk about in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, this guy radicalized. He wore the uniform simply not because he loved this country, but just wanted the scholarship and got into the Uniform Services Medical School. And ultimately, he was radicalized by his Salafi jihadism, by his radical fundamentalist interpretation of Islam that then led him to seek out folks like Anwar Awlaki, the enemy of America, that he then communicated with. These slides down the pathways of radicalization don't happen spontaneously. They are nurtured and fueled in a conveyor belt of separatism. So this is why this topic of assimilation is so near and dear to my heart, because it's the primary tool in my chest. It is the primary tool that ultimately we are creating programs at our American Islamic Forum for Democracy, for liberalization, for honoring our kids and their identity as Americans. They can still practice their faith. We, we actually tell them that their Americanism will strengthen their faith so that they can push back against the Islamist establishment and be strong leaders, not just sheep in the prayer rows at the mosque, but leaders to create and build a new interpretation of Islam that is Western, that is a new school of thought, that rejects the schools of thought, be it Sunni or Shia, that are Salafi jihadists, that are Islamist. That's what assimilation is. So I, I think Tom Brokaw on Rufta, a, a topic that should be at the top of every university, think tank, government, panels in the next few years is do we believe 
What do we believe is the social contract in America? We are on the verge of a cultural war, ladies and gentlemen. What, why do I say that? I'm not being exaggerated. Look at what's been at the top of the debates lately, from the Kavanaugh hearings to this week we saw the, the unbelievable testimony by a Virginia legislator that talked about abortion right at birth at the ninth month and the Virginia governor that wasn't able to walk back his defense of that. Again, we won't step into the debate of abortion on this program right now, but at the end of the day, the the cultural divide of what are American values is getting larger and larger. On the one hand, you hear the left say Roe versus Wade is settled. On the other hand, now they're trying to extend that. So which is it? You can't have it both ways. If you try to, that'll lead to cultural deepening and chasm. We saw what happened to the Covington High School Catholic kids and how that story was just blown out of exaggeration. If you don't know it, then you don't know it, but just an unbelievably... And we, they, they've now hired an attorney, thankfully. Because I think they, those high school kids were maligned. So one culture takes high school kids and empowers them to fight against the Second Amendment. Obviously, that's fine. They, they, they have that right to do that. They're learning activism, and they suffered a trauma that so many would not have the power to rebound the way they did. But on the other hand, other high school kids are then targeted in a malignant, exaggerated way as they are approached by an identity politic. And I'll let you fill in the details on that. What's happening lately, though? Let's shift subjects a little bit. Let's look at the latest from the Tulsi Gabbard campaign. And then we'll talk the ultimate of immigrants, which is former ISIS fighters. I've talked briefly before about Tulsi Gabbard, the congressman from Hawaii. She uh, portrays herself as sort of a uh, uh, centrist uh, Democrat. Uh, She's spoken out against uh, ISIS. Uh, But at the end of the day, anyone who's in the Syrian community, American Syrian community, that uh, is aware of anything going on in the Middle East uh, understands that Gabbard has been a, a Apologist for the Assad regime. She has uh, been on multiple trips uh, funded by uh, what appear to be significantly uh, 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 sympathetic organizations to Assad, if not their lobbyists. And uh, she has por- betrayed American values when it comes to human rights, to rejecting genocide, to rejecting Iran, rejecting the influence of Russia, the Khomeinists and has just been pathological in her support of the Assad. Now, that's one thing. 
Now, to hear that she was going to launch a presidential campaign made me just writhe that not only how the people of Hawaii continue to reelect her, but it has come out now since her announcement that uh, she had many positions that were not only homophobic, but uh, in some way bigoted. I'll let you all sort of discern that. But the story out this week was that her campaign was doomed from the beginning. She had abandonment from the folks that she was talking to to launch her campaign. Uh, She had been, even though considered a rising star, the day of the launch, she ended up doing it impulsively, uh, was unable to organize just even a few staff to launch it through Thanksgiving, had them working through the Friday after Thanksgiving, and then decided to do a CNN interview in a pre-taped interview on the Van Jones show that she would make her 2020 run, but she blindsided her team, according to Politico. The website wasn't ready to go. Social media posts weren't ready. The surprise announcement left many of her aides working frantically. And now the story's going out because her PR firm, many of the folks she had worked with had abandoned her and are wishing her luck. Folks weighed in against her candidacy, saying she needs to work continued with her district and not be running for president and these are folks from the left so all i can tell you is that this is somebody who may be running now as a centrist in the last campaign ran as a bernie sanders supporter a socialist she's all over the map she can't run a campaign and she's an asset supporter and she traveled there on his dime look at adam kinsinger's speeches on the floor from congressman from illinois about her duplicity. Look at Senator Rubio's comments about her duplicity when it comes to Assad and Iran and her votes against sanctions on Iran. It's just unbelievable. It couldn't have happened. Her her collapse of her uh, hasn't collapsed yet officially, but the rumors of the collapse of her campaign could not have happened to a better apologist for the Assad genocidal machine. It's a little aside. We were talking about assimilation before. How about this for the ultimate of assimilation? France is now talking about taking 130 former ISIS fighters that are jailed in Syria. Do you know that there have been over 2,000 French that have fought that have fought in for ISIS in the jihad in Syria? in the radical jihadist militants of Syria, over 2,000. We've seen many from America in the hundreds. We've seen in over 1,000 from Britain, from Australia, etc. So they're coming from all over the world, but the bottom line is, is these 130 have been in prison in Syria, and they're going to be released, and the French say they're going to give them due process. Now, Australia and the UK, I think, hats off to them, have stripped... Any of the folks that have fought in foreign jihadi conflict in Syria, they've stripped them of their citizenship, and I've called for that here. Now, many of you may say, that's just un-American. We can't just strip people of their citizenship. Well, if your citizenship oath says to protect America from enemies, domestic and foreign, fighting for ISIS's, and listen, I know they're fighting supposedly against Assad, but they're not. They're fighting against democracy they're fighting against revolutionaries they are fighting for a caliphate they are the the penultimate evil 
in the Muslim world and on the planet. So, at the end of the day, the individuals that would be coming back, if it is obvious that they fought for jihadists, they have lost their citizenship. I'm sorry. If you fight for uh, uh, the Russians against the Ukrainians, you should lose your citizenship. If you fight for enemies of American ideals, you should lose your citizenship. Now, is that done arbitrarily? You want due process? Absolutely. You should have due process. It should not be done arbitrarily because then that can be abused. But I'm sorry. When you swear allegiance to the United States of America and then you go and fight with another country's military that is not a democracy and not an ally of America, you deserve to lose your citizenship. And ISIS is number one on that list should strip you of that citizenship, and we should enact similar laws. The Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces have been holding these 130 French for a while, and they don't know what to do with them. They can no longer hold them, and obviously as America pulls out, the resources are even going to decrease significantly more. French authorities declined to confirm the details of the report that the jailed fighters will be sent back, but it has mandated that all who do return will be subject to due process, whatever that means. And I say whatever that means, because if you look, many of the folks that have committed acts of terror have been known wolves. They've been known to have been previous radicals who've traveled or whatever it might be. And why should they let these folks back in? They went to fight in Syria, tell them to stay there. Or if they let them back in, they should just go right to jail, do not pass go. You have fought against the enemies of France. You have fought with the enemies of France, I should say. France is 11-12% Muslim. The impact of these returning jihadis into their communities could be quite significant. There are significant areas of ghettoization that exist in France that we should talk about. Tarek Ramadan right now is one of the most famous Radical Muslims that's in a prison cell. You had supposed reformers like Khaled Abu al who wrote a piece six months ago saying that his conviction, not conviction, his arrest on rape charges, on sexual assault charges against four different women were a Zionist fraud, a Zionist conspiracy, he called it, as typically Islamists do. This professor in California should become a laughingstock. It's now been released that Tariq Ramadan's texts showed significant hundreds of texts between the women that he claimed to have denied initially knowing and then denied having any sexual contact with. Now the texts reveal otherwise. This guy, if you don't know who he is, Google him, Tariq Ramadan. He was supposed to be sort of the protege of Yusuf Kurdawi in Qatar to be sort of the spiritual leader of the 21st century political Islamic movement. This is no small fish. And thus comes this conspiracy theories in that, oh, he was going to become too powerful. He himself has admitted to the text messages and admitted to the contacts and the infidelity. Typical of Islamists, they become criminal violent misogynists. 
So France, <laughs> we'll see what happens with the Ramadan story. But when it comes to bringing ISIS folks back, there needs to be a process that we in the West deal with fighters through if there's no laws on the books, we put them on the books. You fight in foreign jihad, you renounce your citizenship, and you be dealt with as a terrorist when you come back. Last, I think it's fascinating that some prominent Democrats have formed a pro-Israel group to counter the skepticism on the left. The left is becoming more and more anti-Semitic, and as you notice, as they become more anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, they are endearing themselves to the two radical Islamist congresswomen, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from Minnesota and Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib from Dearborn, Detroit area. And I think the Democrats are beginning to realize that they're going to lose not only the significant amount of Jewish support, but rational American support, over 90% of whom appropriately see Israel as our greatest ally, not only in the Middle East, but probably across the world, as the democracy that they are. And yet the radical Islamist, Ilhan Omar, within a few weeks now, every day she says something more absurd and grotesque than the day before. And by the way, to the lunatics in Minnesota who voted for her, thank you for putting a radical Islamist, and I say this sarcastically, in Congress. Unbelievable. It is lunacy that this woman is in Congress. Ilhan Omar is being interviewed for Yahoo News, and she basically said, Israel's not a democracy because it's a religious state, and she compared it to Iran. She compared it to Iran. And the interviewer didn't bat, bat an eyelash. Kept on going, just... Didn't see that as anti-Semitic, didn't see it at all. And then she doubled down and through Twitter tried to smack down a Jewish Republican congressman who questioned the appropriateness of her being on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And somehow that question is Islamophobic, is xenophobic as many of the Islamist leadership in America said that that must have been because he questioned that when, in fact, this is a committee that deals with appropriations and she will continue to lecture everybody probably about Israel's lack of democracy, according to her. And somehow that is supposed to be fine. She has a right to say that. That's fine. But I hope the hundreds of thousands that voted for her in Minnesota for her district and then the Democratic Party that's endearing themselves to this new 21st century congressperson realize that that becomes their face. Now, this new group, Democratic Majority for Israel, can try to reshape the impact that the Ilhan Omars and Rashida Tlaibs and AOC, the Cortezes of the world, are doing to their party. I don't think they're going to be able to change that. The Women's March saw some hemorrhage and others, but the left is becoming the party of anti-Semites. Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm, former Clinton Housing Secretary Henry Cisneros, and others are trying to recover whatever's left of the pro-Israel left. 
And the reason it's important to me on this program is because I have always felt that one of the litmus tests of Islamist apologetics and apologia is their position on Israel. Their understanding that Israel is a normal country, secular democracy. Yes, it has a Jewish identity that emanates out of legitimacy because of the percentage of their population that was lost in the horrific genocide. And we remembered this week, we remembered last weekend rather, Holocaust Remembrance Day. And every year remember the six million Jews that were erased from this earth by the Nazis. The legitimacy of the existence of Israel emanates from that. From that horror and from the need for them to have a protected state. You could even cite Quranic scripture about the state of Israel. I know that's controversial, but it's not only me. There are other imams. There are other scholars. There are imams that have talked about that. So to me, one of the litmus tests of Islamism, of radical Islamists, is their rejection of Israel, their inability to identify Israel as a country, let alone as they should as a democracy. So it comes as no surprise that Islamists on the left, like Omar and Tlaib, are going to be anti-Israel first and American second. They are going to be pro-Palestinian, pro-Islamist first, and American second. They're going to be anti-Semitic first, pro-American second. We'll continue to fight them on this program, expose them for what they are. It's just a treasure trove of understanding radical Islam. If you look at the, the way Ilhan Omar and Tlaib respond to questions about the Middle East, uh, their position on Argent, on uh, I'm sorry, on Venezuela last week, I think, as which I talked about was just as you see in medicine, pathic mnemonic of radical Islam and Islamist positions. It is always an honor to be with all of you. Stay strong. Stay warm if you're up in the Midwest and getting these negative 30, negative 40 degrees temperatures. I grew up in Wisconsin, so uh, this is one of those few times. Few times. I'm glad I'm not up in Wisconsin. I'm down in Arizona. good friend of mine from from my uh, younger days, sent me a picture of his thermometer. It said negative 24. And I said, well, we're positive 24 <laughs> Celsius. Uh, yeah. Stay warm, folks. Stay healthy. Stay in- indoors. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Share this podcast. Tell your friends about us. Subscribe on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and at blazetv.com podcasts. Talk to you next week. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.